We've spent a good bit of time in these first few lectures developing Van Til's Trinitarian theology, looking at the confessional theology that he advances from Westminster Confession 2-3. We spent some time talking about A.A. Hodge's extensive development of that Trinitarian theology in his work on the Westminster Confession of Faith. We considered for a time Herman Bovink's reflections in Reformed Dogmatics. And we also addressed the implications of the ancient doctrine of Trinitarian perichoresis, uh, the co-indwelling or co-inherence of the persons who are exhaustively and um, in every sense of the term internal to one another. And we've tried to develop the implications of that for a robust Reformed Trinitarian theology. And the conclusion that we've drawn up to this point is that Van Til is not innovating by bringing into his system alien or foreign philosophical conceptions. He is instead advancing confessionally reformed Trinitarianism as received by old Princeton, as expounded by old Amsterdam, and he's developing that theology in the service of reformed apologetics. And so before Van Til talks about worldview, before Van Til talks about covenant, before Van Til talks about epistemology, he is anchoring everything in the ontological trinity who is our interpretive concept everywhere, as he continues to say. Now, we're going to advance our discussion by talking now about what Van Til calls the representational principle. And the representational principles discussed in the Survey of Christian Epistemology, chapters 6, 8, and 9. The Survey of Christian Epistemology, chapters 6, 8, and 9. Now, to my knowledge, very few have noted, and no one has developed Van Til's theology of the representational principle. Given the fact that Van Til understands this principle as a deep structure, an integral category, that is saddening. It is disappointing. Why? Because the representational principle is going to be the feature that Van Til employs to integrate his robust Reformed Trinitarianism on the one side, and his theology of the image of God and covenantal condescension on the other side. In other words, the representational principle, if we're talking about Van Til's theology, is integral. It is that feature that integrates Trinitarian theology in the service of image of God and covenantal condescension. It's a foundational architectonic structure that permeates all of Van Til's theology and apologetic. And this course is building now on this representational principle to take everything we've discussed in the past up to this moment and begin to move it in the direction of developing a reformed theology of image and covenant. Now, I want to say in advance that this is a summary of that representational principle, and there's more to develop beyond what we're saying. So there's more to say, but never less 
than this. So the representational principle describes the relationship first among the persons of the Trinity who are the one God. That's what it does first. Secondly, it will be used to explain the relationship between the triune God and the creation. And so this is moving us now, this is the first step in moving toward the two circles that Van Til would draw on the board so regularly. But first, we have to be disciplined and take our time and talk about the triune creator, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and think about the Trinity prior to and apart from creation. In Van Til's language, we have to talk first about the self-contained ontological trinity. So Van Til, in the Survey of Christian Epistemology, this is on page 96, he says this, the trinity exists in the form of a mutually exhaustive representation of the three persons that constitute it. He says, now also on page 78, that was a quote from page 96, he says on page 78, even the persons of the Trinity are mutually representational. They are exhaustively representational. And so what you can see Van Til adds to the discussion we've had up to this point is the idea of mutual and exhaustive representation. I'm going to put that on the board. What is integral is mutual, exhaustive representation. Ventil says this is foundational to the doctrine of the Trinity. Another way he puts it in Common Grace in the Gospel, page 13, is that the persons of the Trinity are mutually exhaustive of one another and of God's nature. So not only is there mutual exhaustion, they're mutually exhaustive of one another and of God's nature, they are also mutually representational. Now we've got to understand what Van Til means and be sympathetic, critical, and analytical. So let me review briefly what we've set up to this point and then demonstrate what the representational principle adds to the discussion. First, remember this, that we began by confessing one living and true God, the first proposition that Hodge summarizes regarding Westminster Confession 2.3. But secondly, we've said that the Father, in a relation of personal subsistence, is that undivided essence of God. The Son, in a relation of personal subsistence, is that undivided essence of God, and the Spirit, in a relation of personal subsistence, is that undivided essence of God. Each person, each hypostasis, 
is a subsistence who simply is distinctly the entire or whole undivided essence of God. And this is true of them without remainder and in precisely the same sense. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Second, and what we covered in the immediately preceding lecture, each person exhaustively indwells the other Trinitarian persons. Think back to the two categories that Turretin introduced for us. First, the person's Father, Son, and Spirit permeate one another in their relations of co-inherence. They dwell in one another. They exhaustively inhabit one another. There is no exteriority to their personal relation. Each person, as he subsists as the undivided divine essence, exhaustively permeates the other person in a relation that has no creaturely analogy. But in that permeating relation, remember, each person retains his incommunicable personal property. The father retains that property of paternity. The son retains that property of filiation. The spirit retains that property of spiration, even as the father dwells in the son and the son dwells in the father and the spirit dwells in the son and the spirit dwells in the father. Second, remember Turretin said the persons embrace one another in the ineffable interiority of their personal relations. This conception needs all the intention and emphasis we can give it. The permeating relations are relations of mutual personal embrace. This is an analogous to the fellowship bond between the creator and the creature, but it infinitely transcends that relationship because in the relationship between the creator and the creature there is an exteriority the creature never is in an entirely interior personal relation to the trinity so the permeating personal relations in perichoresis and the embrace that constitutes those relations is one of exhaustive and infinite perfection. That is the archetype of personal relationality. Now, here's the question. What does the representational principle, as Van Til puts it, add to what we have covered? I'll remind you of those two quotations again, one from page 96 and one from page 78 of the Survey of Christian Epistemology. I'll remind you one last time, this is the most neglected and least understood aspect of Van Til's system, and it's the most important. He says, the Trinity exists in the form of a mutually exhaustive representation of the three persons that constitute it. And again, even the persons of the Trinity are mutually representational. They are exhaustively representational of one another. So what does the representational principle add to what we have had on the board 
and understood up to this point regarding these relations of subsistence and coherence within the undivided essence of God. Well, first, the representational principle adds this idea. Each person distinctly represents the entire and undivided essence of God by way of what we will call a relation of personal subsistence. So the Father, think of it now, adding to this notion of a relation of personal subsistence, what do we say of the Father? He represents the entire and undivided essence of the one living and true God. And this is the key. As he subsists, as the undivided essence, he exhaustively represents that essence. It's not that he's exterior to it. It's not that it's a representation of the Father external to the essence who represents that essence. It is in the relation of subsistence that he represents the whole divine essence by way of that relation. Secondly, the Son, as he relates to that essence in this relation of personal subsistence, what does he do? He equally represents the entire and undivided essence of God, and the Spirit in the relation of personal subsistence represents the entire undivided essence of God. So, the Holy Spirit represents by way of personal subsistence the whole essence of God without remainder, and that is true of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, the representational principle applied to the persons in their relation to the divine nature means this, the Father not only subsists as God, but represents as he subsists all that God is without remainder. Likewise, the Son and the Spirit. From that quotation of Common Grace in the Gospel on page uh, 13, this is saying that the persons are exhaustive of the divine nature. Secondly, the representational principle adds this idea. Each person represents the other persons by way of a relation of personal co-inherence. Each person represents the other Trinitarian person by way of a relation of personal co-inherence. So the Father represents the Son even as He dwells in Him. The Holy Spirit represents the Father even as He personally indwells the Father. The Son represents the Holy Spirit and vice versa as He dwells exhaustively on the interior of the other. So, here's what we can say. The Father represents the Son since He indwells the Son in an entirely interior relation of co-inherence. It is exhaustive representation of person and person. 
The Son represents the Father as He indwells the Father in an entirely interior relation of coherence. And likewise with the Spirit. So the representational principle brings into view now the representation of each person of the entire divine essence and each person of the other persons in the Godhead given these relations of coherence. So each Trinitarian person distinctly subsists as the simple essence of God, personally indwells the others in a relation of coherence, and as such, there is mutually exhaustive representation of person to person, person to nature. So Van Til's summary of this conception and whether this is the best language to choose is something we can continue to reflect on and try to develop. But each person is absolutely exhaustive of the other person and of the entire divine nature without losing those discriminating personal properties of paternity, filiation, and spiration. As each person is God, each person indwells the others in eternally living and personally dynamic relations of mutual coherence. Van Til's summary, then, is there is complete, mutual, exhaustive representation. And so, the representational principle is nothing more than a description an exposition of those relations of subsistence and coherence that we've seen flows directly out of classical Reformed Trinitarianism. But now, as we think about the representational principle, what this does, the representational principle does, it's integral to talking about the mutually exhaustive relations within the Godhead, person to person, person to nature. But now Van Til's going to remind us that the representational principle also has a direct bearing on the creator-creature relation. Remember we've talked about that, the creator-creature relation, where the triune creator remains immutably absolute and impassable in relating to the creature by virtue of creation and covenant. Van Til says this, about the representational principle or the representational plan. Page 79 of the Survey of Christian Epistemology. Listen to what he says. He says, since the whole being of God, if we may in all reverence say so, is built on the representational plan, it was impossible for God to create except upon the representational plan. And so now, this representational principle this representational plan comes to bear not only on how we understand the relations of the persons to one another and to the essence of God ad intra but now it comes to bear on the relationship of the creator to the creature. So that 
discussion we had in our previous module about the creator-creature relation, we're now revisiting and amplifying in light of Van Til's representational principle. Now, in the quote above, let me just say this, it should be obvious, Van Til does not mean to imply that God's nature is regulated by an external principle, the representational plan. That's true for one obvious reason. Van Til staunchly affirms God's absolute aseity when he remarks that God is in no sense dependent on anything besides his own being. Defense of the Faith, page 206 from the first edition. This means that God does not depend on anything outside of himself, so we can't take Van Til's language and derive from it that there's an external principle or plan God's being is built upon because God is self-contained. He's self-complete. He cannot in any sense have his being built on anything external to himself. What is Van Til trying to say? He's trying to say this, and his language is strained because this is of the most profound mysteries that we deal with in dogmatic theology. He's simply trying to say that God's being is exhaustively representational, as we've just defined it, and that this God, is the one who creates man in his image and enters into covenant so that the representational character of God's being is the unique Trinitarian ground for a reformed theology of image of God and covenantal condescension. That the representational principle is the Trinitarian foundation for a distinctively reformed conception of the image of God and a distinctively reformed conception of covenantal condescension as you find put in summary form in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, section 1. So the point that we have to make is this. The representational principle not only helps us understand the intra-Trinitarian relations, but how those relations bear on our theology of creation, image of God, and covenantal condescension, an act of special providence. Listen to what Van Til says. Van Til says, the foundation of the representational principle among men is the fact that the Trinity exists in the form of a mutually exhaustive representation of the three persons that constitute it. And he goes on to say that the covenant idea is nothing but the expression of the representational principle applied to all reality. There's the pivot point. That's on page 96 of the Survey of Christian Epistemology. What does Van Til say? That this representational principle, and I'm going to put the triangle in there so you can remember that we're talking about a specific and particular conception of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that Van Til has developed. The representational principle that is encapsulating now these relations of subsistence and coherence. It is that relation that's going to provide the foundation for image bearers in covenant with God.
In other words, the mutually exhaustive personal representation among the persons of the Godhead supplies the ontological basis for the representative function, particularly of Adam, as the image of God in covenant with God. And so let me talk about those two points and amplify what Van Til's saying just a bit. First, the natural religious relation that God has with Adam as the image of God, that natural religious relation is fundamentally a personal relation. Adam, formed in the image of God, has fellowship with God and enjoys a form of communion with God that is a creaturely replica of the archetypal union and communion and co-inhabitation Hodge spoke of in his introduction to systematic theology, which Ventil quotes in the IST. You see, on a Reformed theology of the image of God, informed distinctively now and fundamentally by this Reformed conception of the Trinity, Adam is created not merely as a rational and volitional analog to God, who does not yet have fellowship with God, as Rome says, he is instead created at the instant of, of him being formed from the dust of the ground. In that instant, he is created in natural religious fellowship where person has fellowship with person in a bond of mutual religious embrace. True knowledge, true righteousness, true holiness that consists in what? The worship of the God who is one in three and three in one. So there's a creaturely replica of personal fellowship between Adam and the triune God that is an ectype, a copy, a replica of this archetypal principle of exhaustive personal representation. Contrary to the Roman Catholic view, Adam is not created merely as a rational and volitional analog to God, needing extrinsically infused grace in order to have fellowship with God. He is entirely inclined toward God in original righteousness and holiness and in true knowledge with God, uh, in, in, in worship of Him. Now, in addition to that, Adam, when he is created from the image, uh, from the dust of the ground, and in fellowship with God, he is by nature a worshiper of God in, in religious fellowship with God. Covenantal condescension, according to Westminster Confession 7.1, is an act of special providence by which God promises Adam himself as Adam's fruition and blessedness and reward. On what condition? On condition of perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience, Adam can advance from a mutable form of natural religious fellowship with God 
to its consummate perfection, where God himself, in the language of Westminster Confession 7.1, God himself is Adam's blessedness and reward. That special act of covenantal condescension confers on Adam what category that he does not have by nature. Adam is the representative head of all who would descend from him by ordinary generation. So Adam is created by nature in personal fellowship with God whereby he worships him and has this person-to-person friendship with the God who is one and three and three and one and covenant as an act of special providence places upon Adam, confers upon Adam a representative function. A function by which he is not only representing God as a vice regent on earth, as a prophet, as a priest, as a king, but he's also representing all who will descend from him by ordinary generation. Adam is not a federal head by nature he, and by an, a work of creation, image of God. He is a federal head by a covenantal act of condescension via special providence that is temporally concurrent with the work of creation, but by that special providential act of condescension, temporally concurrent with the creation the image of God, he is made a federal head. He is not a federal head by nature. He is a federal head by covenant. And what does covenant do? By covenant, he is made a public person. By covenant, his worship of God is representative of all his natural posterity. By covenant, his knowledge, his trust, his obedience is representative of all who will share his nature and all who are human persons. So all human persons who have a common human nature are represented by Adam as a federal head in this covenant relation. This means that the special act of covenantal condescension is a replication on the creaturely level of the mutually exhaustive personal representation in the Godhead. It is the mutually exhaustive representation of person to person in the Godhead that is replicated on a creaturely level in the work of creation, image endowment, covenantal condescension, where Adam by covenant, becomes a representative not only of God on earth, but of all who would descend from him by ordinary generation. Image of God supplies the person-to-person fellowship between the creator and the creature. It's not the exhaustive interiority of perichoresis, but an analog of it. And covenant supplies the representational dimension whereby Adam not only can consummate that fellowship, that is his naturally, but that consummated fellowship can extend to all of his natural offspring. That is Van Til's point. The connection between 
Trinitarian ontology and the covenant relationship becomes even more explicit when on page 78 Van Til says this, man's, and just think to Adam, that's the clearest way to focus it originally, Adam before the fall, man's surroundings are shot through with personality because all things are related to the infinitely personal God. What is the connection? Man's surroundings and the infinitely personal God. The connection between the infinitely personal God and man's surroundings being shot through with that personal relation means this, that Adam, prior to the fall, would know God personally through nature, external natural revelation, internal natural revelation. Adam would know God naturally via work of creation, as he's formed in the image of God. And that relation would advance through that special act of providence in covenantal condescension, and not only Adam, but his entire offspring. And so Van Til says that it is quite legitimate and true to say that the foundation of all personal activity among men must be based on the personality of the one ultimate person, namely God. He immediately adds, if only it be understood that this ultimate personality of God is a triune personality. In the Trinity, he says, there is completely personal relationship without residue, and for that reason, it may be said that man's actions are all personal too. Now, when we've said this, and when we've made this basic distinction, what comes clear is this connection. That this doctrine of God, these relations of personal subsistence and coherence that Van Til develops from A.A. Hodge, Bavink, and Charles Hodge, these relations are not simply doctrinal affirmations that we affirm as orthodox Trinitarian theologians, but that this, these relations conspire to provide a distinctive Trinitarian conception that underwrites a Reformed theology of the image and a Reformed theology of covenantal condescension that invests Adam with his representative capacity in his personal fellowship with God, in his religious worship of God, as a creature of God. And as we develop this representational principle, we're going to see that it is, in Van Til's mind, it is the integral structure that gives concrete substance to the creator-creature relation where the infinitely personal God relates to an image-bearer wholly inclined to him who needs only covenant to advance that relationship to consummation both for himself and for all he represents as a federal head. Representation inherent in God 
entails representation inherent in an image bearer created in a covenantal relation of God by an act of voluntary condescension and special providence. That representational principle is the foundation of Van Til's Reformed theology and for the development of his Reformed apologetics.